people who are depressed, they also have days or weeks where they feel very numb. And so I think when you're like that, it's very easy for you to feel completely and utterly disconnected from God. But depression is a disease, it's not a spiritual deficit. According to Beyond Blue, one in seven Australians will experience depression in their lifetime, and more than 3,000 people die by suicide each year. Jeremy Higgins, who lives in Auckland, New Zealand with his wife and two daughters, is no stranger to these facts. He first started having depressive thoughts as a teenager, and these continued on into adulthood, though he didn't quite realise what he was experiencing at the time. Three years ago, Jeremy reached breaking point. Overwhelmed by the pressures of work, church, personal expectations, and a certain traumatic event which affected his family, he found himself on a bridge. Thankfully, Jeremy got the help he needed and recently founded an online community called The Bright Side of Depression to help others navigate this disease and find joy in life again. Jeremy is an outdoor enthusiast who enjoys spearfishing, surfing, and hiking. He also loves being behind the camera and has dabbled in photography and videography. Jeremy believes in a holistic approach to wellness. You will find him in the gym as much as you might find him on a yoga mat practicing mindfulness and meditation. In this episode, Jeremy shares what it's like to suffer from depression, what tools helped him on his journey of recovery, and how, after feeling spiritually disconnected, he is on his way to finding God again. Just a quick content warning, this episode does discuss depression and suicide in detail and may be triggering for some listeners. Please exercise your discretion as to whether this episode is for you. My name is Maddie Sterling and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we talk with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith in contemporary Australia. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be chatting today. It's great to be with you, Maddie. I really love what you're doing. Um, It's just a beautiful thing. Thank you so much. And I think one of the reasons that I've been looking forward to our conversation is that it is a deeply personal and real story and reflects what a lot of people go through. And I've had some awesome guests on here, but I think you're going to have a little bit of a different take on how you have found a way to to reach out to God and Christ, even when times have really been quite challenging. But first of all, it might be a good idea to get to know you. So could you tell me a little bit about yourself and and where's home for you? What's your family like? That kind of thing. Sure. I You may cut some of this, but I hate talking about myself. It's like <laughs> whenever someone asks me to introduce myself at church or in a, a, a business meeting, I'm just like, hi, I'm Jeremy. That's it. So I am Jeremy. I'm, I live in Auckland, New Zealand. I'm from New Zealand, but I actually lived a number of years in Australia and loved every minute there. I was there as a teenager with my family, um, with my father's work, and it was just an awesome experience. I served a mission in South Korea that was interesting and a very different Mm -hmm. cultural experience, but wonderful. My wife is Australian. She's from Melbourne. I have two beautiful daughters. One is nine and one is 11. And I would just say I'm just a normal person just trying to work out this thing called life. Um, But (laughs) on the side, I do love anything adventurous outdoors. I grew up pretty much in the ocean. love water sports, love the boat, love fishing, especially love spearfishing, um, the surf, 
the beach, but also just love anything to do with nature. So our family loves to get out and do hikes and all the rest of it. Cool. I think you live in the right place if you're an outdoorsy person. I mean, New Zealand is pretty world famous for just the adventures that it has to offer, the beautiful scenery. I would really love to come to New Zealand and especially because we've got that little bubble open. Maybe I will, you'll be hearing from me later in the year. (laughs) That sounds good. Awesome. We are going to touch on some pretty heavy topics today. Jeremy, you have had some deep personal experiences with depression and suicide over the years. This has been a lifelong journey for you. And while you may be somewhat on the other side now, I'm sure it's still not always easy. So I appreciate you coming on here to to be vulnerable and to be willing to share your story about what you've learned over the years. Through your experiences, you now know a lot more about depression, including how common it is, how it affects individuals, families, and, and how to take care of yourself. And a couple of years ago, you founded a blog and an online community called The Bright Side of Depression. That's a space, from what I can gather, where you share stories and knowledge with others who are also struggling with depression. Yeah, you're right. Um, My uncle, who also suffers from depression, often says, I'm really good at depression. I'm I'm an expert. And um, while that may not be something to gloat about, this little community called the bright side of depression is really as you say a space to share and basically to help people know that they are not alone and it's teeny weeny it's this teeny weeny little thing with a handful of followers but i get people reaching out weekly um, people i know people i don't know just asking very simple questions and most of the time i'm simply pointing them in the right direction because I'm not a professional expert, so I'm not going to give people therapy or anything like that. But it's really a place to help people know that they're not alone and that you it's possible to come through and find joy and happiness on the other side. There's a dark side to depression, but it's actually also something that I think makes people superheroes if you can learn how to manage it. Um, you can have insights and perhaps empathy for others. It's really just a blog and a place of hope. Well, you might think it's small, but obviously it really is helping a lot of people if you're getting messages every week. So thank you for creating something like that. To those tuning in, Jeremy and I have chatted before and I joined one of his workshops and there were many people who walked away from those sessions feeling uplifted, feeling inspired about how they can better help themselves or better help their families. So I think it's awesome what you're doing. Thanks. I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, no worries. So I'm sure most people have an idea about what depression is, but we do use the term quite frequently. People throw it out like, oh, I'm so depressed to describe maybe if they've just had a bad day. So sometimes I feel that the term can lose its meaning. Would you be able to just give me a quick overview or definition of what real depression is and How does it manifest in people? Yeah, that's a great question. Every one of us has a bad day, maybe even a bad week. Um, So one of the questions I often get is, well, how can you determine whether it's just you're having a bad day or a bad week from what may be considered clinical depression? And the easiest way to describe that, and this isn't just me speaking, this is 
the research, the stats, it's what doctors will tell you, is that if you are feeling significantly low or sad or down or dark or depressed for two weeks or more, then you likely have what they may call depression or clinical depression. So that's an easy way of talking about it. Um, Another thing that you may hear is while people can feel sad and down, those who are suffering from depression would feel the extreme versions of sadness uh, or the extreme versions of exhaustion, uh, of anger and pain. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So you first recall having some dark and depressive thoughts when you were a teenager, but you didn't really know what it was at the time. How old were you when that started and what was it like? So I can't remember exactly when it started. I just do recall um, as a teenager not really liking myself or my life all that much, even though on the outside I was perfectionist overachiever, just like many other Mormons out there. I did well at school. I performed well on the sports field. I I wasn't a victim of extreme bullying. I had a pretty good life. I had a stable home. Um, but when I was about 15 years old, I remember talking to a friend. It was just one of those days where I felt really down about myself and not even really Knowing what I was saying, I just kind of said something to the effect of, I just can't do anything right. Maybe I should call myself. Or it might have been something more like, it'd be better if I wasn't around. And the feeling was just, I don't seem to be able to do anything right, or I don't seem to be able to meet the expectations that everyone has of me or the expectations that I have of myself. I even remember walking down the corridors and I would intentionally walk in the shadows closest to the wall just so that I could, I guess, hide myself a little bit more from the people around me. So it was like you wanted to remain hidden, didn't really want to draw any attention to yourself. You just didn't want people to notice your flaws and your weaknesses. I definitely wanted to hide from people. But yeah, I appreciate you sharing those kind of feelings. Uh, And you didn't really recognize maybe the gravity of those feelings at that point in time. I know you had a friend who was concerned about what you said and they went and told the teacher. Is that right? Yeah, I was a deputy vice principal and uh, I was brought into the office. This person asked me about what I'd said and I didn't really have an answer. And to be honest, I don't think they really tried to get any help. And it's not that I think that they weren't willing to help. It's just, it was just a conversation we had. And then that was it. Mm. I mean, yeah, when you're in a high school and you're monitoring so many kids and teenagers have problems anyway, I suppose it's hard for people to get a measure of how bad the situation really is. So after that experience, over the next couple of years in your life and as you matured into adulthood, did you kind of wade in and out of periods of being more hopeful and positive? How did depression work for you? Yeah, so people who know me will say that I'm a pretty calm and very positive person. So I would say if you were to look at my life over the past 20 years since I was a teenager, um, I'm coming up to 40 soon, so 20, 25 years I've had a pretty great life. I would just say that every now and again, 
every few months, every few weeks, you'd just have a really dark patch where you would, one of your questions was, how does it manifest? Um, and it could manifest in a number of ways, but you'd have this dark patch for a few days, um, sometimes for a few weeks where you either feel very exhausted, like constantly lethargic, Physically, don't want to get out of yep. bed. Um, or you might feel just really irritated and on edge about everything. So a simple conversation um, that really didn't mean anything might kind of trigger you uh, into thinking someone was trying to have a go at you. Um, so you just, every now and again, I'd just go into the space for a few days or a few weeks um, where I, I wasn't able to really regulate my emotions very well. And sometimes it was on the side of, you know, I'd say very heated emotion, anger, um, irritability, and then on the other side, kind of on the colder side of emotions where you just feel numb and lethargic and sickly and don't really want to do anything, have no motivation to do anything whatsoever. So this type of uh, experience has followed me ever since I was a teenager, but it wasn't actually until about a decade ago that I recognized that these phases were this thing called depression. Um, before that, I just, I don't even think I even realized it was happening. I think I've mm. become more aware of the fact that I will go into these phases. Um, but yeah, it was about a decade ago that I recognized it to be depression. And I think that was simply because awareness has been raised um, and things I've read or, or things that people have mentioned to me. And I guess as that awakening came to me, I began to act to be more proactive in my efforts to fight this thing. Okay, awesome. Was there anyone in particular who helped you realize that you have this tendency? Well, my wife likes to remind me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure in, she does. <laughs> in kind and loving ways, of course. Um, but, you know, just like a kid um, who's struggling with their emotions, sometimes people need to kind of snap you out of it and just say, hey, mm -hmm. Jeremy, what's going on? Um, so, you know, of course my wife has just been a tremendous support um, and, you know, she didn't recognize it at all in the first part of our marriage. It's been a learning journey together. Um, but for the most part, a lot of it um, prior to that, it was me um, just doing the hard work. And I had one of the strongest prompting I've ever had in my life. I just, I woke up one day and I had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to start running. I didn't know why. I just knew I had to do it. And so that day I started running. I hated running um, and I still <laughs> hate running. Um, but I just running did it. Is awful when you haven't run properly for a few years oh <laughs> yeah it's the worst it's the worst and so I just started running and um, I ran almost every day for a number of years until my knees uh, stopped functioning like they used to and I've <laughs> found alternative ways to get fit but the message for me was God was telling me to get fit and now I'm looking back I don't know if God is preparing me to have some heart attack in the next few years. I don't know what the real reason for that overwhelming prompting was, but I'm guessing that one of the reasons was God was saying, 
Jeremy, you need to get fit, you need to get healthy. The first thing for you, Jeremy, is just start running. That's one thing you can do to start getting more healthy. And this was before I had this awakening about depression. But I really feel that God has been in the details of my life even before I realized I had a problem. And I think that that running later foundation of fitness that I have enhanced and built on over many years now, and now people would call me a fitness addict. Um, <laughs> but I really believe that God was in the details and he put a number of things in place and helped me recognize what this was. And over the past decade, I've been building on that. Yeah, fantastic. I'm sure it put you in good stead to endure the next couple of years, which, which got quite dark. So I guess this conversation is leading up to the, the most dramatic depressive episode that you've experienced in your adult life. There's a blog post that you wrote called Finding God Again. There was a paragraph in there that I was reading this morning that I think kind of highlights who you were before depression really took its toll. So if it's all right with you, I'm just going to read out that quick paragraph where you said, I was an active member of my Christian faith. I said my prayers regularly and I studied the Christian scripture. My job was deeply satisfying and focused on a noble cause. I sat on the board of a charity NGO and was actively involved in the community. I had a beautiful wife and two gorgeous, healthy girls. I was fit, healthy and strong and led an active, adventurous lifestyle. I was well-liked by my peers. I was trusted, kind, creative, and intelligent. I was a good person. I mean, it sounds like you have it all there. Everything was going so well for you. What changed and how, how did things spiral downward so quickly? Thanks for sharing that. You know, you're reading things that I've written that I forget about. And I think part of the reason, <laughs> part of the reason why I wrote that in that particular blog piece was I want people to understand that this disease, this problem can hit anyone. And of course, the statistics for those who've been abused emotionally, physically, sexually, who have faced trauma, all sorts of different trauma in so many different ways, the stats for those kinds of people would be much higher than perhaps a Jeremy Higgins. But I just want to highlight that this really is no respecter of persons and it can hit anyone, even someone who seemingly had this wonderful life. So all of that was going on, but amidst all the goodness in life, underneath all of that, there were many days where I simply felt empty and I was confused about why. It's like the formula that we were taught as children, particularly in a Christian faith, you know, do what is right, pray and read, and you'll be okay. And that used to work. And then all of a sudden, it just didn't seem to be working anymore. You feel like you're acting. I imagine that a really great actor is very, very exhausted after they've been acting for days or weeks or months at a time. Was there any guilt involved in the sense that you had this great life? Why weren't you able to appreciate it more? Absolutely. That's a great question and a great insight. There's guilt because you have so many blessings. But I think from another angle and another perspective, unfortunately, I think in our church, or even in Christian culture, people inadvertently place 
people in a state where they feel a lot of guilt because they're not perfect. And so as much as my life was great, you know, I'm just like everyone else. I make mistakes. Um, I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. And so I think on top of the general feeling of why is this happening? Why don't I feel whole when I'm following the formula that everyone told me to follow? But I think on top of that, it was, okay, I'm not perfect. And I'm basically my worst critic. And so any small thing I do or even a large thing that I do wrong, there's just so much guilt and it becomes the spiraling vortex where you just mm. eat away at yourself and, and you just feel worse and worse about the person you are. So how old were you at this point in time when things started to get really confusing and dark? You were married, you had two children at the time. So, you know, you get married and you have kids and life gets complicated and exhausting and, you know, you learn things about your wife, your family, the people around you, about work, and everything's not what you expected it to be. So I work for the church now, and some of the things I would see were surprising. There's amazing, wonderful, beautiful people for the most part, but um, you just see things that are unchristian um, in every walk of life. And I think progressively over the past decade, it just got more confusing and more frustrating that these people or objects or organizations or concepts that you thought as a child were perfect and unbreakable were so breakable and so imperfect and often so frustratingly unfair and so I think over years, there's just been this anger and this frustration building inside. And it was um, about three years ago now. This was 2018. So I'm in my mid-30s and all the lights went out. And it was similar, but just more intense compared to any of the other depressive episodes I'd had in the past. It was week upon week, and then that turned to month upon month of switching between extreme emotional overload, extreme anger, and extreme sadness, to also feeling on other days completely and utterly numb and void of any feeling whatsoever. I don't know. I hope that gives a little insight into what this particular major depressive episode felt like it does thank you we don't have to go into this but did you want to touch on the the kind of events and circumstances that may have exacerbated what you were already feeling sure so leading up to 2018 a number of things had happened in our lives that were hard um, and nothing too different from anything else that would happen to anyone else that lives on this planet we call Earth. So it's not like someone was killed in front of me or any major trauma. I just, my, I just can't even understand the types of things that other people experience all over the world all the time. But just general 
things that happen in life that are difficult and really hard, whether that be relating to finances or emotions or relationships or children, um, betrayal, those kinds of things that can happen to anyone. Um, and this particular year, in 2018, something happened um, in the church setting, in the church context, that was very much, I felt, and my wife felt, a betrayal of friendships and a betrayal of the principles of the gospel. And without going into too much detail, because I'm not going to crucify anyone in a podcast, um, a certain church leader approached my wife with sexual intentions. And so a person who we trusted very much betrayed our trust. And again, this is just my perspective. This is just my story and my truth. I felt like the church was trying to protect their own. They didn't really seem to care too much about what had happened. And it's just what I felt. It may not be what's true, but what I felt was who's looking out for us? We didn't do anything wrong here, and yet we are the ones that are suffering. Please help us. And so I felt this very strong pull away from involvement in the church. And I basically said, I can't serve with this person or the other people that oversee this person because no one seems to be looking out for me or for others in the ward, and I'm worried that other, other people might be affected by this person. And so I started to pull myself away from involvement in the church. It just became so messy. Our lives just became so messy because of something that had happened. But this, you know, this wasn't the only event in our life that had been difficult. It was just kind of for me, it was the icing on the cake. It's what pushed me over the edge. I just started to lose it. It was, this is too much. I don't, this is not what I expected my life to be. This is completely opposite to what I think should be happening to people who are trying their best to live the gospel and do what is right. I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. I can't handle this anymore. And I think it just pushed me and I became so exhausted and so overwhelmed that there came this day, which I'm assuming we're going to talk about where I found myself on a bridge. Yeah. How did you find yourself on the bridge was it something that you consciously did, um, had planned out, or were you just in such a haze of confusion that it just kind of happened? Great. Thank you for your question. This particular day, it was a haze. But let me just take a step back in the months leading up. So the months leading up, I had been highly suicidal without even realizing it. So for example, I'd get off the bus and every day when I walk home from the bus, I would walk over this bridge which towers over one of the Auckland motorways. And so every day for the week leading up to this event, I had felt this urge to jump. It was more like these little whispers, like little temptations. Oh, Jeremy, you should jump. That would just, it would solve all your problems. Um, but before that, I had gone into the office in the evenings I told my wife, I'm going into the office to do some work. But what I'd actually done was I'd driven to a beach and gone out in the dark completely alone by myself and looked across the ocean and had stood in one place for an hour or two 
contemplating whether or not to drown myself. And so there's this combination of meditate, pre-meditation um, and kind of just these little temptations or these little whispers to, to do a certain thing. But on this particular day, um, an argument had occurred at home. I was already in this bad state of mind and I take full responsibility what, for what happened. I'm just in this bad place mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And after the argument, I found myself in my room for about 45 minutes, curled up in the fetal position, just bawling my eyes out, wanting but not wanting my wife to come. I didn't want her to come, but at the same time, I wanted her to come and comfort me. And then I exited the room. Some comments were exchanged. And again, I was just not in the right frame of mind. And it just sent me into this raging sadness, this raging anger. And I stormed out of the house. I didn't have anything on me. I didn't have any idea. I didn't have my phone. I was literally just in a T-shirt and some flip-flops. And I don't really remember what happened. And so coming back to your comment, I was in a haze. Um, and I just was wondering, my local streets is kind of a bush area close to where we lived. And there's big main streets and there's a motorway. I found myself walking through the bush contemplating using my belt to do certain things in the trees. Um, but eventually, about three hours later, I think it was, I found myself walking onto the bridge that I would cross each day to come home from work. Wow. Thanks for describing it. It sounds, it must have been quite scary for your wife to not really know at what point you were at because for you, you were in a haze, but maybe that was, you know, coming out as anger on her end. So you'd been out for three hours. You found yourself at a bridge. What stopped you? It was God's voice. I was walking onto the bridge, again, not very aware of what I'm doing or what's going on around me, and I heard someone call out my name. It was not a voice I was familiar with. It was a woman's voice. I turned to face her, and as I turned, it all happened in slow motion. I know it's cliche. <laughs> I recognized that she was a policewoman because of what she was wearing, and I immediately collapsed onto the footpath uh, right next to this very busy road and motorway. And all of a sudden, I found myself emancipated from this trance that I was trapped in. And as you can imagine, all sorts of feelings and emotions were going on at that point in time. It was like exhaustion, fatigue. It was, what on earth am I doing? Oh my gosh, what am I thinking? So there was so much exhaustion, fatigue, but there was also so much relief. And I believe that it was God. Did you know this woman? How did she know your name? So what had been going on in the background for the past three hours was my wife luckily had the feeling to call my best friend who also happens to be someone who has lost friends through suicide. And he had become one of my best friends because he knew how to support me. Um, and she called him, told him what had happened, 
um, because I'd actually mentioned something as I left the house. I'd mentioned and said, you don't get it. You don't understand that every time I walk over that bridge, I just want to throw myself off. And that is the last thing I said before I left the house. And so my wife had called my friend and my friend had said to my wife, you need to call the police immediately. You need to call them right now. Get on the phone. And so what had been happening over the course of this time as I was out wandering the streets was they had about eight or nine police units on the ground looking for me. They had a police helicopter. So there were oh, people wow. looking for me. Yep. Wow. What were the next steps after that moment? Straight after that, I was taken in a police car with three police officers to the hospital. And, of course they're trained to handle these types of situations. So for the next number of hours, I was surrounded by cops. They wouldn't let me out of the room. Um, I had various psychological evaluations from doctors, nurses, um, psychologists, psychiatrists. Um, it was a really long night, but that indeed was probably the big wake-up call for me that something was seriously wrong. And it wasn't actually until after that event that I realized through a lot of therapy and talking about it and rewalking various moments over the months leading up to it that, oh, I've actually been suicidal without realizing it. Even um, being on the beach a few weeks before, I didn't realize that that was suicide ideation. And I'm guessing that there's other people out there that don't really realize that that was going on. So they got this crisis team involved. The support I received personally was just absolutely fantastic. Um, so I had the health department looking after me. I had friends and family looking after me, after me. And for the months after that, I have to say so that people understand, like I was still heavily suicidal after that. And there were still many moments, many, many moments where I would say, I can't do this. But basically that sent me on this journey of recovery and healing, which is still occurring today, but lots and lots of therapy, lots of lots of reading, lots and lots of attempted prayer. I'm still trying to get good at praying again and being, you know, your typical Christian, Mormon, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it sent me onto this journey of just trying everything and anything. Yoga. I'd never done yoga in my life. I started doing yoga. I started eating differently. I, you know, I made sure that my exercise regime was in place. I started making sure I was getting plenty of sun um, to boost the serotonin, melatonin, all that kind of stuff. So lots of scientific stuff, lots of holistic, hippie kind of stuff. Um, I just started doing everything I could to get better again, but it was definitely not a straight line. Were there people around you who just expected you to, to heal really quickly? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think I was the worst one. I just totally thought that you just follow the formula, you know, and it would just be this progressive kind of line sloping upwards. Um, and so obviously everyone else probably would just, expect the same if they hadn't been through this themselves or they hadn't um, supported someone that was going through this. So I'd say almost everyone <laughs> in my life probably expected it just to kind of gradually get better step by step. Um, next day is going to be good and then the day after that will be better, but that is definitely not <laughs> what actually happened. <laughs> 
So was it more like, how would you describe it? Like a good day, then three bad days, a half a good day, five bad days. Like, did it get progressively better or was it just there was no pattern to it? I'd say there was no pattern whatsoever in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So and so I'm talking about for the, for the first few months after that. Um, it, to be honest, for those who are in a deep depressive episode like that and they'll understand what I'm saying is it was hard to even feel happy for just a few seconds. So every single day was just dark. It was a battle. But after that, it did start to be more like a pattern. You know, the first time I felt like happy-ish for five minutes, um, I think that was a big breakthrough. And then after that, you started to see these patterns. So for example, I was just walking along the beach and I remember distinctly thinking, oh, wow, I haven't had a dark thought for a couple of weeks now. And I knew that that was the first time that had happened in about six months. So I know you wanted to talk a little bit about your recovery process, and we've, we've obviously started touching on that. You mentioned that you were looking at holistic options as well for healing, meditation, yoga. Were you on prescribed medication? I personally was fortunate enough not to need pharmaceutical-type medication, um, but I'm totally not against it. I, in fact, I've had this conversation with my doctor and my therapist multiple times, and we often will go back to the drawing board and say, do we need to look at this again? And we have multiple times. I, I believe it's absolutely a wonderful blessing and a miracle that we have these types of medications. Personally, I opted for alternative ways, and that included the scientific therapy, you know, cognitive-based therapy, talk therapy, all that kind of stuff, and I've done so much of that. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I've done so much therapy, um, and I'm still doing it. Um and regular meets with my doctor. Um, but it was also about choosing what I eat, choosing the type of exercise I do. Prior to that, it was, I was just all about strength training and Olympic lifting and CrossFit kind of stuff. And I still love that. But my therapist said, Jeremy, your life is just intense everywhere. You're intense at work. <laughs> you're intense at home. You're intense at the gym. She's like, you need some alternative forms of um, exercise. She's like, just try and go for a walk a couple of times a week instead of going to the gym every single day. And so there was that kind of um, adjustments that I, I made to my, to my schedule and my life um, that helped. And, you know, I, I flew to Sydney twice, actually, and I saw an uh, iridologist and a naturopath who looked into my eyes and told me all these yep. things about myself that I was like, how do you know that? That's crazy. You know, there's no one size fits all and with anything in life really, but particularly with me mental health, you've just got to try all these things. So I was willing to try everything and anything. I'd say I've done it all. Mm. There's such merit in looking at all aspects of what makes us up, you know, like mind, body, spirit, all, all those elements are obviously connected. And we know that from the, the gospel context. I like that you're open to that. And um, probably good for people to hear if they're solely only relying on drugs or they're solely relying on, you know, eating broccoli every day but not doing anything else. Like it, it is, as you said, a, a holistic journey. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, there's a couple of stories that I'd like to share in regards to my recovery process that helped me. So the first one is in regards to the mighty Thor. Like, I love the guy. He's just my favorite superhero. <laughs> um, but seeing him in Endgame was just the icing on the cake for me. For, for those of you who have not seen Thor and his movies and Endgame, you need to go and check it out. But, you know, <laughs> Thor is just as ruggedly handsome just strong person who at the beginning was a bit egotistical. He was oh, yeah. um, kind of a bit, you know, he thought a bit too much of himself and then he turns, you know, that's his yeah. story. That's his arc. He changes and he realizes that he needs to be humble and he needs to change. And so anyway, I've just loved him from the beginning, but then in Endgame, he's this overweight PlayStation playing <laughs> loser guy who is depressed and anxious and just like all of the other superheroes after the click or the blip everyone's pretty messed up half the planet has disappeared and Thor has been especially affected because he has lost everything he's lost his family his brother his sister his mum his dad and he's just a man who's just lost everything. He looks terrible. He has this completely unhealthy lifestyle. He's just a mess. He's going to go and do this great mission, and he's just like, I can't do it. And he starts crying, and <laughs> his companion's like, pull yourself together, Thor. Come on. <laughs> and he happens to bump into his mother, and he's just basically confessing. He's saying, Mom, I'm just an idiot. I got it all wrong. And I just loved, it just resonated with me. It brought me to tears when I saw this on IMAX theater. Um, and his mother said, you're not an idiot. A failure, absolutely. <laughs> but an idiot, no. And his mother said to him, everyone fails at who they're so supposed to be for. The measure of a person, of a hero, is how well they succeed at being who they are. And it was just a huge light bulb moment for me. I know it sounds silly, but here I am. I'm seeing this like the god of thunder, the superhero who was just completely and utterly down in the depths of despair, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, just everything. He's just lost. He's a complete loser. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. And um, I realized that like him, I'd been judging myself and my success based on what everyone else expected of me. And it helped me, along with all of my therapy, to realize that we do too much in the way of acting and performing for others, for our parents, for the church, for the people at work. And as we put on this mask and sometimes pretending that everything's okay when it's not actually or just bending ourselves to the wills and the expectations of others, um, that mask that we put on becomes fused to our actual personality. And when we try to take off that mask, especially um, as we're trying to recover from mental health, it becomes very, very difficult to just take it off and just be ourselves and feel what we want to feel and say what we need to say because you've been living this lie, you've been acting for so long that it's just almost impossible to take that costume off just like that. Like it takes time to 
peel off the layers one by one peel off absolutely and to unbond yourself from that this was kind of an epiphany for me during my recovery process is that we need to stop performing and i don't think that thor's mother was saying to him you know you've just got to be who you are that means you're an angry person you're an angry person i think what we're really trying to discover and see here is that be okay with where you're at you didn't meet the expectations of yourself you didn't meet the expectations of others but you will succeed by recognizing that and being okay with that. Just accept, okay, you failed. That's okay. What are you going to do next, Jeremy? And I need to roll with that, even though that might be a terrifying thing because I don't think too much of myself right now. But I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to do something about it. That is an amazing analogy. I loved it. Thank you. Uh, thank Endgame. Thank those guys. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you were doing the things to get yourself out of that depressive episode and um, were focusing a lot of energy and time on healing your mental and your physical self, but there was still a spiritual journey alongside that as well. Now, one of your blog posts is titled Finding God Again, the one that I mentioned earlier, and in this blog, you share your journey about how you lost your faith during these times and how you you found or are continuing to find your way back. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I think I think we've touched on it a bit. You either have on one side an emotional overload when you suffer from depression and other mental health issues, and so there was a lot of anger and bitterness. Like, why is this happening to me? That kind of rhetoric. Um, on the other side, um, people who are depressed, they also um, have days or weeks where they feel very numb and disconnected from every emotion. So I, I'm literally talking numb. So there's no joy, there's no anger, um, there's no, like, I, I didn't feel any connection or desire toward my wife. Like, there's just, it's just like it's nothing. Empty. Yep. empty, completely empty and numb. And so I think when you're like that, it's very easy for you to feel completely and utterly disconnected from God. Like you're either, he's not there, I can't feel him, I can't see him, he's not in my life, I don't feel the spirit anymore, um, which by the way, um, for those who are of a Christian faith, that may be something that um, resonates with you. Like I don't feel the spirit, I just want to let you know that's very normal. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Um, but then on the other hand, there's this emotional overload and you, you just feel sad and confused and frustrated um, at everyone um, and potentially a lot of times you feel that towards God as well so I was one of the lucky ones like I never completely and utterly lost my faith like I knew God was there I just couldn't feel him and so I just held on to that hope it was like this teeny tiny little um, piece of thread hanging but I felt a lot of animosity towards the church now I'm talking about the church culture and people in the church versus the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and again, that's my own problem. That's me. But I had to remove myself from church for quite a long period of time. A big part of that was also severe anxiety that I began to develop. So I would get panic attacks on a Friday or a Saturday night. And I later found out and figured out that that was all related to my anxiety about attending church. Yeah, I can relate to that in the sense that, oh, I really don't want to go to work tomorrow, but <laughs> uh, it must have been really hard feeling that about church, which is meant to be a safe haven, like a place of rest and solace. 
Yeah, that's right. It doesn't make sense, right? It just does. <laughs> it just didn't make sense, and I'd never felt that before. And and even one time I was in church and I had a panic panic attack in the middle of a church meeting, and I was rushed to an emergency room because I was having kind of seizures. And turns out it was just they're like, "There's nothing wrong with you," you know. After a couple of hours later, but they're like, you just you stressed um, or you're anxious. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was my reality. And for, you know, a good year or more, more than that, actually, because I'm still struggling. I still struggle with church. I still have panic attacks sometimes. Um, but in a sense, I had lost a lot of what I thought my faith was or what I thought my relationship to God and to his church was. Um, and for a long time, I couldn't pray and I couldn't read because it would send me into the spiral. It would just trigger me. Anything to do with church and the priesthood would just trigger me. And my therapist, who was happened also to be an LDS therapist, actually said, Jeremy, for a time, you need to distance yourself from these triggers. You need to allow yourself to heal and to grow and to become comfortable again. And so church for my family sometimes was going to the beach. And my heart would be full of gratitude to God, and I would worship in that way. But gradually, over time, um, things started to get simpler. And I had this experience one night, and this is coming back to what I said before. The experience was, you know, people feel like I don't feel the Spirit anymore. And that's a truth for some people. And one night I woke up in the middle of the night. My wife was asleep. It was particularly dark on that evening. And I literally couldn't see her that night there was no moon no stars but the funny thing was is that she wasn't touching me but i could feel her presence and on that night i recognized and realized that even though it felt like god had distanced himself from me or it felt like he wasn't there because i wasn't feeling the spirit i recognized and realized that he was actually there I was just clouded by so much mist and darkness that I didn't recognize it. And so I'm saying this to give hope to others who may have had that same experience of being cut off from the spirit, that God is there. Um, and because our minds and our bodies are actually broken when we suffer from severe depression and other mental illnesses, even though we may not be able to feel things, connections like we used to, I recognized in the middle of the night with my wife there, oh my gosh, I can actually feel her presence even though I'm not actually touching her at this point in time and I can't actually see her. And I think that's the same with mental health and um, how we fit in as, as far as Christians and, and the spirit is concerned. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that you have given us all permission to find God personally and in a different way. God can be found within our homes and at the beach and by spending time with our family. So, yeah, if, if church is triggering for people or if they can't feel the spirit, then there are other ways that God is reaching out to you. Yeah. It's, it was about, it was just a few weeks ago, so this is two and a half years later, that I, for the first time since 2018, felt comfortable at church again. And the next week I didn't feel comfortable again. But that's okay because it's coming. It's coming. I also really liked that because 
we maybe have um, sometimes the idea that if you just have more faith or you pray and you read your scriptures, then you'll be able to heal yourself and you'll be able to feel the spirit. But obviously that's not the case with a clinical disease. And the apostles point that out too. Yeah, they so do. out of Renland, he said exactly, exactly the same thing. He said, when people are this sick, this is now beyond, beyond reading the scriptures. It's beyond praying more fervently or exercising more faith. He said, those things will become important. But right now, you need more help than that. Yeah, actually, Elder Holland said that if you had appendicitis, God would expect you to get a priesthood blessing and get the best medical care available. So too with emotional disorders. You know, we, we don't just have to rely on the Book of Mormon when we're at that critical point. There are amazing resources that Heavenly Father has given us in this era that we can, we can turn to. So it's good to hear that from apostles as well. Prayer and scripture study is not, in most cases, helpful when someone is suffering from severe mental illness. It's just, it's not enough. And perhaps we all forget that the best thing we can do is to sit with a person suffering, hold their hand, and listen. That's it. They don't need advice from you. They don't need you to share scriptures. In fact, they may not even need you to talk. People still think that suicide is a sin. Mm. Um, what did Ada Renlund say? There's an old sectarian notion that suicide is a sin and that someone who commits suicide is banished to hell forever. And he says that is totally false. And I love what he said after it. He said, I believe that in the vast majority of cases that we will find that these individuals have lived heroic lives and that that suicide will not be a defining characteristic of the eternities. And I know, especially in my generation, that people don't think that way. Out of Renlin said, that is wrong. Um, let's change our thinking. Brilliant. Thanks. So let's shift into some advice that we might give to people who are first struggling with depression. And then I'd love to hear your tips for family members who are also supporting those going through the same trial. One piece of advice is for people to understand that, especially in a church context, that depression is a disease. It's not a spiritual deficit. Another piece of practical advice would be if someone is really ill, you need to get the emergency services involved pretty much immediately. Sometimes that might be doing something that the sufferer may not particularly like. So in my case, it was a friend calling. So this isn't the bridge day. This is another incident after the bridge day where my, my friend mm. noticed that I was really struggling on a particular day at the mm. office, and he literally called the crisis helpline explained what was going on with me, and then pulled me back in the office and said, Jeremy, you may not like me for this, but that's okay. I can live with that. You need a bit of extra help right now. Here, get on the phone. I've already explained the situation. And so I was put in touch with a crisis team. So, you know, I think we need to recognize that when someone is on fire, you don't just get out the hose, you call the emergency services. So Talk about fires, talk about the Australian bushfires. You've got everyone there. You've got the police, you've got the ambulance, you've got the firefighters. Everyone gets involved until the situation gets under control. And so as far as practical advice is concerned, if you know that someone is really sick, then just get them involved. 
um, and they'll thank you later for it. And once things are under control and it's less of an inferno and more just like a campfire, then, you know, you can shift things back to the normal. What are some of the signs that family members and friends should be looking out for, particularly with teenagers who, you know, have a reputation for just being moody in general? What are some red flags? That's a really good question, and I wish I was more qualified to answer this. And so I would encourage anyone to go. In almost every country, there'll be a national website or multiple national websites that will give a much better answer than this. So study it. But if you notice that a teenager or a friend or a spouse has been down for an extended period of time, we're talking about a couple of weeks, and they seem to be stuck in this rut, then that's probably a really good indication that they are suffering from something a little more serious than a bad day. Um, Other signs to look for is general lethargy. Um, People just don't want to get out of bed in the morning. And again, (laughs) talking about teenagers, so that's kind of every single day, but we're talking about like (laughs) can't, literally can't get out of bed. Also, um, things like extreme irritability. Again, teenager, but we're talking about just more than usual. Um, One of the good things that you can do, again, this is Outer Renlin has said this on camera and many other places will say the same, is that it is completely safe to ask someone directly if they're having feelings of harming themselves or if they're having suicidal thoughts. It does seem like something that people hesitate over because you don't want to put the thought into their head. Um, but it, it's great and reassuring to hear that it, it is very okay. Why is that? Is it because you feel noticed, you feel seen? Absolutely. I think that's a huge part of it. I think people in a dark place 99% of the time are not trying to be an attention seeker. Now, of course, there are cases where that might just be their personality, but I think most of the time these people are suffering in silence because they don't want to burden anyone else because they already feel terrible. So when someone asks, it's exactly what you said, they feel like they've been noticed, they feel seen, and it's a relief. It's reminding me of what you were talking about before with the police officer who called out your name and that instant rush of relief. Oh, I'm not alone. Like somebody knows what I'm going through now. Absolutely, 100%. So are there any things that you would recommend family members try not to do? Don't try to fix them. Don't say things like, oh, you're fine, you'll be all right, or on the opposite spectrum, like you've been such a drama queen or a drama king or whatever. The best thing you can do is just be with them. The most touching experiences I had in my recovery process when I was really bad was simply my wife holding me and not saying anything, just sitting with me and holding me while I'm bawling my eyes out. It's beautiful. Maybe it's just, it really is reaching out, giving, giving someone a hug. Do you have any final advice for those maybe who are experiencing depressive thoughts or almost at the point that you were on the bridge, what should they do now? Um, The first thing I'd say is you're not alone. I know it feels like you're alone. I know it feels like no one else understands. But the best thing you can do is to try and find, even if it's just one safe person. So, you know, my family hadn't been through this before this happened. So let's be honest. In the beginning, I didn't find much help because they didn't get it. And how can you expect them to understand what's going on and how to help when they've never dealt with this before? 
So when I found a friend who just through casual conversation had revealed that they'd lost a number of friends to a suicide, it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. So if you feel anything similar to what has been described today, make the effort to try and reach out. And I know that's hard finding the right person, the right group, but you will find them eventually. And when you connect, it's all about connection. When you connect with someone who gets it, everything will be okay. Your support network and the people around you will save your life. Great advice. Thank you so much. So Jeremy, the title of this podcast is Choosing Faith. There are often obviously moments throughout our lives where we really have to make an active choice to believe in God, even if we're not feeling it at that time. And you've described that today, feeling no spirit, but having memories of fulfilling the spirit. So after your experiences in the past couple of years, what does choosing faith mean to you? It means a lot of things. It means a lot of hard work. It means harboring and believing in the hope and exercising a huge amount of faith. And just let me give you a couple of examples of that. So we all know the story of Nephi, the iron rod, his vision, the mist of darkness. And one of the things I've learned is that, you know, everyone holding that iron rod experienced mists of darkness. Everyone did. Nephi, Laman and Lemuel, everyone. What we had to do was simply choose to hold to the rod. And those mists of darkness may have lasted days for some people, minutes for others. doesn't matter. It's a, it's a choice. It's a choice to face God and, and move towards him. The other thing I'll say is I think we need to realize and remember that God shows up from personal experience in our highest highs, but also in our lowest lows. And my personal experience was I'm depressed, I'm suicidal, I'm walking onto a bridge. God didn't abandon me. He sent someone who called out my name and who essentially saved my life. And so... For me, choosing faith is about acknowledging and remembering that God is there even when we feel like he is not. One of the other things that really stood out to me was the recent talk from President Nelson in just this past April conference. And I just yes, absolutely... Uh, he used the term choosing faith. I was like, excellent. <laughs> so cool, right? So cool. And one of his quotes was, the Lord does not require perfect faith for us to have access to his perfect power. But he does ask us to believe. And, oh my goodness, I have not had perfect faith over the past few years, but we don't need that, and God doesn't need that. There is room for doubt. There is room for uncertainty. There is room for feeling alone. But President Nelson, he hit on the spot. We don't need perfect faith to access God's perfect power. And if we just try to hold on to that and try to remember that and choose that, it will all eventually be okay. Thank you for listening to Jeremy's raw but incredibly inspiring story. If you've experienced any of what was discussed today, you might find solace and support in the Bright Side of Depression community that Jeremy founded. You can find this page on Facebook. Beyond Blue, Lifeline, Reach Out and the Black Dog Institute are also excellent Australian resources where you can find more information and connect with licensed professionals. I hope this interview has been helpful and uplifting. I'll see you next time.